0: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. Thank you all for coming today, and welcome to our April Conservative Women's Network. I also want to give a special thanks to our CWN co-host, the Heritage Foundation, Bridget Wagner, our partner in these uh, talks and luncheons since 1999. We're delighted to have Gail Trotter with us today to talk about an issue that's especially critical to women the right to defend ourselves under the Second Amendment. Gail is a columnist, political analyst, and attorney. She first attracted media attention probably around 2013 with her testimony before the United States Judiciary Committee hearing on gun rights and gun violence in America. She is very uh, present in the media these days. She's weekly on talk radio shows. She appears on TV, most recently Fox News channels, Kelly File on One America News, she's regularly on Media Buzz, she contributes to The Hill, The Daily Caller, Town Hall, and many other well-known political websites. Gail has an insider's view of Washington, D.C., serving as a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum, vice president of the Kirkpatrick Society, and co-founder of a law firm in the metro D.C. area. She received her B.A. and J.D. from the University of Virginia, where she served as an editor of the International Law Journal. Gail is actually a native Washingtonian, but she's never lost touch with the heartland of America, and she brings keen insights on the issues of the day. And Gail and her husband are proud parents of six children, six babies. You are blessed. And they make their home in Washington, D.C., In her spare time, after the children and the jobs and the boards and the media, she loves to play basketball, she loves reading to her kids, and she likes to travel to archaeological sites. Please join me in welcoming Gail Trotter.
1: Thank you, Michelle, and thank you all for being here today. You know you've hit a nerve with the mainstream media when the New York Times takes its lead editorial to scold your ideas as being dangerous. Mm -hmm. The mainstream media, the New York Times, and liberal elites were particularly shocked when I told the United States Senate that guns are the great equalizer and that proposed gun control regulations have a disparate impact on women. Now, a woman's ability to protect herself in a violent confrontation is critical, and it is more important for a woman to have a gun in a violent confrontation because guns are the great equalizer. And you might wonder how can we protect, have meaningful protection for women in these violent confrontations? Well, the, law, the most important component of the Second Amendment is the ability to defend ourselves for self-protection. When I went and spoke before the United States Senate, the issue on the table was what should America do about gun violence? And I was happy to share with the United States Senate that first, America should respect, defend, and protect the Second Amendment. Secondly, we need to resist any efforts to have laws that have perverse effects and do not offer meaningful protection for women. And third, we need to make sure that legislators do not advance agendas that do not help women's ability to protect themselves. The truth is that women can and often do protect themselves, loved ones, and other members of society using firearms. In my discussion with you today, I'd like to share three points. The first, I'd like to talk to you about the history, the meaning, and the purpose of the Second Amendment. And then I would like to share with you some facts about private gun ownership and gun safety. And third, I'd like to talk to you about the role of the media and ideology and bias in this debate. Let's start with the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is in the literal text of our Bill of Rights. And right now, not very far from this auditorium, we have liberal Supreme Court justices who believe that they should be inventing new rights. We have seen this happen time and time again. And yet, the euphemism for this invention of new rights is looking at the Constitution as a living document. But unfortunately, these liberal Supreme Court justices have part of our Constitution that they want to kill. And the Second Amendment is the best example of what the liberal justices would like to airbrush out of our Constitution. I remind you that armed citizens founded our nation. They enshrined gun ownership in our Bill of Rights. And there are people out there who would like to tell you that this Second Amendment, this right to bear arms, is an embarrassing oddity. And they might, if you really push them on it, say that it's a quirky anachronism that allows citizens to own things like flintlock muskets. But that's certainly not the case. If you look back at history, it dispels this myth. Uh, If you look at the idea of what the founders were trying to accomplish through our Bill of Rights, it was to protect individual citizens from the encroachment of of the federal government. And essentially, the Second Amendment was seen as a way to protect citizens from tyranny. If we look back at Alexander Hamilton, who has come to great success over the summer with this Broadway hit that everybody's raving about and thereby prevented being kicked off of our currency... He had uh, written a lot of papers with James Madison called the Federalist Papers in support of the adoption of of our Constitution. And he talked in Federalist Paper number 29 about how the best protection for the citizenship was to have people who had arms no different than the standing army of the government and no different in the arms or the training so that they could repel any ambitious encroachments of the federal government. We also had James Madison, who was the co-author of the Federalist Papers. In Federalist 46, he talked about the citizens having ultimate authority and they would come up with plans of resistance if the federal government encroached on the rights of the people. And this is my favorite quote of James Madison. He said that the citizens of the United States have the advantage, unlike most of the citizens of the other nations of the world, of being armed. And I think that that shows the the thinking that our founders had when they were setting up our system of government and how we should order our lives together. So you think about the individual rights that the Supreme Court has created in the last couple of decades. And unlike many of those rights, the Second Amendment is in the literal text of our Constitution. Our Bill of Rights guarantees a right of the people only two other times. In the First Amendment, it guarantees the right of the people to assemble and petition the government, which is clearly an individual right. And in the Fourth Amendment, it guarantees the citizens a right to resist unreasonable searches and seizures, which is clearly an individual right as well. I think when we're talking about violence in our society, and particularly gun violence, we have to think about doing what works. Now, when we look at the history of the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment, We saw a lot of progress in 2008 when the Supreme Court ruled in D.C. versus Heller that individuals have a right to possess firearms for traditional lawful purposes like self-defense. And there was a case that came about two years later that extended that to state governments. State governments could not prohibit the individual right to keep and bear arms for lawful purposes. Now, the liberal dissenters in that case, if you go back and read their their opinions dissenting from the holding of the court, which upheld the individual right to keep and bear arms, they decried that the court was creating a brand new right. Now remember, these are the same liberal justices that will create rights that are not written in the literal text of the Constitution. And yet here, in this case, where you had It's specifically in the language of the Constitution. They're saying that the the holding of the Supreme Court was inventing a new right. Now, these justices love to look at the penumbral emanations of the specific guarantees of the Bill of Rights to divine, through judicial secrecy, these individual rights. But it would be really easy to look at what the, the liberal justices said in their dissenting opinion Part of their rationale, which is just absurd on its face, was that not allowing uh, uh, people in a particular locality, this case involved D.C., so any residents of D.C., so prohibiting them to have an operable firearm to use for a lawful purpose was okay, because neighboring jurisdictions like Maryland and Virginia, allowed a citizen of D.C., They were just a brief subway subway ride away. You could hop on the subway, go to Maryland or Virginia, and be able to use a handgun for target practice. And you can just imagine, if the core component of the Second Amendment is self-defense, the fact that a neighboring jurisdiction allows you to exercise this right is of no comfort to you. When you're confronted with a violent criminal attacker, are you going to coax that attacker onto the subway to follow you to the other jurisdiction so that you can exercise your individual right to protect yourself and loved ones and other people who might be at risk. I think this really underscores that there's a dramatically different view on our Bill of Rights. And I think part of this stems from not really understanding the facts about private gun ownership and about public safety. I've written about a lot of things. I've written about free markets, I write about Obamacare, I write about constitutional issues. And after a lot of the mass shootings that we had, I was thinking about writing about the second amendment, but it's so such a difficult thing to write about because people get so upset about these horrific tragedies that happen that it's very hard to write about it in that climate, uh, especially when I think we have this ideological bias where uh, we have a lot of reporting on these types of horrific incidents, and it's almost a deterrent to wade into the debate. But one time I was sitting at my computer, and the story of this young mother came across my screen. And this woman was 19 years old. She had a 10-month-old baby. She had just lost her husband to cancer. He had died, and she was in a small town in Oklahoma. And one day, she was sitting in her house alone with her 10-month-old baby, and two violent attackers decided that they wanted to gain access to her home with the intention of stealing the leftover medication from her deceased husband. So these two young men, decided to break into the home of a young 19-year-old mother with her 10-month-old baby armed with a foot-long hunting knife. She took the gun that she had in her home and she was on the phone with 911 trying to get help from the government authorities to come out and defend her and her baby. But she was on the phone with them and they told her, "We, we can't we can't come there in time, which is frequently the case with situations like this. So she was armed with a weapon, and the two young men broke down her door. And it, it went through her mind immediately. It was either going to be them or it was going to be my child. It was not going to be my child. And so she shot one of the violent attackers, He was wounded and the other one fled. And that all happened in a space of time before anyone with governmental authority could get there to protect her and her child. And I suddenly realized when I was reading this story that there's a really important part that is being left out of this debate on gun violence in our country. And I think it's so important to drive home the point that guns make women safer. Now, this is an uncomfortable fact for opponents of our Second Amendment, but the truth is guns reverse the balance of power in a violent confrontation. And I just started doing some digging around on this issue on my own because I was interested to see if my theory would hold up, and I went to the Obama Department of Justice website and looked at the Bureau of Criminal Statistics and just went through all the data and learned it was so interesting to me. I learned that over 90% of violent crimes in the United States occur without a firearm. So in those situations, when women find themselves in the position of a violent victimization, if they were able to have a firearm, it wouldn't matter about hand-to-hand combat. It wouldn't matter about proximity. It would give them a way to safely reverse the balance of power and provide them an opportunity not only to defend themselves, but also loved ones and anyone else who might be a victim of that attack. I also did some research on concealed carry, and I was really fascinated to find out that in jurisdictions that allow concealed carry, you have a lower incident of violent crime. And not only does it help those who choose to carry in public, it also helps with external benefits or you know everybody else who's in those communities have the benefit even if they choose not to carry a weapon because the violent criminals, they don't know who's carrying or who's not carrying. So they are having facing an increased risk without being able to identify who might be able to defend themselves. So economist John Lott has done a lot of research on this, and he did a study where he looked at 10 states that over 15 years had adopted permissive concealed carry laws and compared them with states that had not adopted concealed carry laws over these 15 years, and found that there was less than half, less than half the number of shooting deaths and injuries from guns than in states that had not adopted these concealed carry permits, which I would put out to you violates the narrative that you hear every day in the mainstream media. you ne- this never gains national attention. When you think of the idea that when I did more research on looking at safety and violence and criminality, private citizens account for more than one-third of the cases where a violent felon or attacker is killed. So if you're thinking about all of the situations where a violent attacker is in you know, some conflagration, over a third of those cases, that person is stopped by a private individual, not by a police officer, not by an armed security guard, but a private individual. I think it's also important to to understand, as I did my research, I learned that there is a liberal professor, Gary Kleck, who's a lifelong Democrat, member of the ACLU. He's done a lot of research on crime. He did studies showing that there are over 2.2 million defensive gun uses a year and I think that number is just astonishing I think to think of the lack of reporting on this to understand that there are 2.2 over 2.2 million times a year that Americans use firearms in order to protect themselves and loved ones is something that needs to be addressed in any discussion about what we should do about gun violence Also, in the states where we have seen reduced gun ownership, we also see that home invasions go up and lethality of attack on individuals, law-abiding individuals, is much, much increased. So when you have homeowners who are allowed in jurisdictions to have firearms that are operable, then it's just like I was saying earlier about it increases the risk for criminals Because they don't know when they break into a home if the homeowner is going to be able to resist the attack or not. So you have spillover effects not only from concealed carry laws that are permissive in states, but you also have spillover effects for everybody in their homes when criminals don't know which homeowners are able to resist by using these guns, which are the great equalizer. I also think it's important when we're looking at these facts about private gun ownership and public safety. I think everyone in this room has heard, repeated over and over again, by every town which is funded by Mayor Bloomberg and uh, the Brady Center for Prevention of Gun Violence. They like to t- tout studies all the time to scare women and other members of the society, of our society, that guns actually are not helpful, that they don't make people safer. But the truth is, if you look at the studies they're using, the studies have faulty methodology, flawed data, and in some cases, overt lying. Take, for example, this one study from 1993 by Emory University professor Arthur Kellerman. In the study, he looked at data where there were homicide victims, and people went and asked the relatives of the homicide victims, whether guns had been in the home of the homicide victim. And this study has been used over and over again to, sh- to try and convince people that a gun in your home makes you less safe than if you have a gun able to protect yourself with self-defense. The truth is, if you pull back the numbers on this study, there were 444 homicide victims' relatives who were interviewed. And of those 444 Only eight of them were killed by a gun that was in the home. The vast majority of the homicides in this 444 group were killed by other methods like strangling, knife attacks, bludgeoning, and other things that, um, you know, other methods of murdering people. So most of the deaths in this study didn't even involve a gun at all. And when you think about this, you look further at some of the data in this particular study, and Arthur Kellerman also did not count properly the number of defensive gun uses because he only counted as a defensive gun use when the the violent attacker was either shot and killed or injured. But in doing my research on all this, I learned that less than 1% of of defensive gun uses, is the violent attacker injured or killed? Think about that for a minute. In less than 1% of violent attacks, is the violent attacker killed or injured? So, by not counting that, he was severely undercounting the effectiveness of self defense. And the truth is that when we look at the literature on safety, women, gun control, There was a really good law review piece by a feminist scholar named Inga Larisch, and she looked at the data on self-defense and women, and she said that the statistics have been miscited, and she also made the point that gun control has a disproportionate negative influence on women. And she made the very important point that these gun control measures disproportionately harm women because they restrict or remove the most effective method of self-defense. We all know that armed security works. You go to a bank, there are armed security guards. There are snipers on top of the White House right now. You go to the Capitol, it's full of armed security. And when you look at mass shootings that have occurred in the United States, almost all of the mass shootings have occurred in gun-free zones. Now when we think about the fact that there are over 20,000 gun laws on the books already, we can kind of come to the conclusion that these gun laws are selectively enforced or under enforced. So instead of going after our Second Amendment right to defend ourselves by law-abiding citizens, we're looking at the wrong side of the equation. So this is where I would like to talk with you a little bit about the role of ideology and bias in this debate. There are many politicians and celebrities who would like to restrict each of our rights in this room to have weapons for our lawful self-defense. And yet these politicians (coughs) and celebrities have been shown time and time again, sometimes in kind of embarrassing circumstances, That what they have a plan for how they're going to defend themselves, they rely on firearms. We had a newspaper in New York, a suburb of New York City, and they did this really outrageous thing. They published the names and residential addresses of gun permit holders in New York. And can you imagine, I don't know about you, but I don't want my name and residential address published in any newspaper for any purpose. But the, the idea was they were trying to shame these people, and then they created a lot of security risks for these people because then, you know, would-be criminals knew where guns were kept. And the really amusing thing about this, after they did the publication of the names and residential <laughs> addresses of private citizens, the newspaper hired security guards to use guns to defend the headquarters of the paper. And upon further investigation, it turned out that the reporter for the newspaper lived in New York City, and he had a permit for a gun, and he had a a 357 Magnum that he used to protect his own security. Uh, I think when we also look at the bias and the ideology behind this debate, we have to look at the medical lit- literature too. We see a lot of physicians out there. I know, you know, I've been to many, many pediatric appointments, and they say, oh, you know, they send you a, they give you a list, and it says, well, you know, risk, keep these things away from your kids. Make sure you don't have a gun in your home. It's become a big part of pediatricians, organizations, and doctors generally. But it might surprise you to know that there are three to five more Americans who are killed every year from physicians' negligence than from guns. But they don't want to tell you about that. They want to push their agenda, and yet you think of the phrase, physician heal thyself, and it makes you wonder why they're on the bandwagon to try and um, push our rights being taken away and not focusing on physicians' negligence and what they can do about that. I think, too, when you look at the media coverage of this issue, the media loves to look at sensationalism. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's something that they really enjoy putting out there and focusing on. And then you remember before 9-11 happened, we had a lot of coverage of shark attacks And the media went wall-to-wall on all the shark attacks that happened over the summer before 9-11 happened. Well, the truth was, shark attacks were down that summer than previous, but that was something that the media really wanted to cover. I think you can see the same effect in the coverage of public safety. For example, you might not know this, but residential pools are more dangerous for children than guns. You have the risk the risk of death by pool is one in 11,000. The risk of death by gun in the United States is one in over 1 million. But we don't hear that from the media. I think as a parent, uh, a lot of parents don't want to let their children go over to another house with a firearm because they've been conditioned that that's irresponsible parenting. But the truth is, a a child is 100 times more likely to die at a home that has a residential pool than to die in gunplay at a home that has a firearm. But we don't hear that. That's not reported. I think when you also look at the role of ideology and bias in the coverage of this debate, I think a great example of this also is David Gregory, who, when he was the host of Meet the Press decided he would bring a 30-round magazine to the stage on his set to interview Wayne LaPierre. Now, his possession of that 30-round magazine violated D.C. law, and he did it on national television. No question that he violated the law, and the law has no exception that you can carry it if you don't have a firearm or you can carry it to make a political point, but the D.C. prosecutor Decided that it would not serve public safety to prosecute David Gregory for possession of this 30-round magazine. And my point would be, I'm glad the prosecutor did not prosecute David Gregory. But you'd want to talk about prosecutorial discretion, selective enforcement, when we have these laws on the books that are not enforced against Public figures, how is that just to the rest of us, number one? And number two, why is it in the interest of public safety to allow someone like David Gregory to possess a 30-round magazine to try and persuade people that it's dangerous, but somehow it is against public interest to allow a woman to have a 30-round magazine in order to protect herself, her family from gang rape, violent intrusion of her home, it just doesn't make any sense. So I just want to conclude my talk with sharing with you that millions of American women do truly care about their Second Amendment rights. If we want to provide meaningful protection to women, we need to protect her right to choose to protect herself with her rights under the Second Amendment. To paraphrase James Madison, the free and gallant women of the United States have the benefit, unlike the women of other countries, to be able to protect themselves. And that's something that we should cherish. Anybody who wants to safeguard a woman's protection and ability to safeguard herself and her family has to understand that guns are the great equalizer, especially for women defending themselves against violent attacks. Guns do make women safer. The Supreme Court recognized that we have a right to lawful possession of firearms to protect ourselves. For women, the ability to arm ourselves for self-defense is even more important than for men because it is the great equalizer. It allows us to reverse the balance of power. And I think it's so critical that we recognize that we will preserve meaningful protection for women by safeguarding the Second Amendment, because every woman deserves a fighting chance.
0: Thank you so much, Gail. What a great discussion, a great review. Um, I have to tell you, at our Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute headquarters in Virginia, which is a friendly (laughs) gun state, there's one woman on our staff, well, at least one, who, when she dresses every morning, The gun is just a part of getting dressed. That's right. I always feel safe when she's there. And it's just a wonderful thing. We're out in the suburbs. Not a lot of danger there, but it is a feeling for It's an office all of women. We're okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to be defended. You have
1: the external benefit, the spillover effect of her That's right.
0: That's right. I mean, we all feel more empowered. Peace of mind. Yes, definitely. Um, I think we have some microphones here for... Uh, the questions. This is uh, Alyssa, one of our spring interns from the King's College, and Jessica, one of our spring interns from uh, Weber State in Utah. So if you would raise your hand, uh, identify yourself, um, and we'll have a little bit of time for questions here.
1: I'll let you call. people. Yeah. Okay, sure. In the back, in the red.
0: You can ask the question. Wait for the microphone. Wait for the mic. No, Thanks. Mm-hmm.
1: Hi, Vicki
2: Dutcher, the Heritage Foundation. I hate to ask the question, do you have any idea what the one in X number is of rape for women? And if that compares with what all those statistics that you just gave, I mean, right there is enough. I mean, what part would they not get in that?
1: Meaning of rape victims, how many are women? Oh,
2: no, how many, one in X number of women are raped in the United
1: States. Right, and that's, I think, subject to some dispute right now, but the usual statistic you hear is one in five. Hello? Right, right. I think that's a really good point, and uh, when we're talking about gun violence, Hillary Clinton likes to go out there and say, 33,000 people died of gun violence in 2014, and yet... of those people in the 33,000 number are victims of suicide. Now, Hillary Clinton supports assisted suicide, but that's a different issue. Um, And 3,000 of those 33,000 people who died by gun are people that there were justifiable deaths. So 3,000 of those 33,000 are people who were killed because they were committing a crime and they were stopped either by a private citizen, which I said over a third of private citizens account for stopping people from violent crime. Um, so I think those, those statistics that you hear all the time, be a skeptic, because a lot of the times they're not giving you the full information, or even if they are, it's, uh, not, it, it doesn't take into account, okay, 33,000, take out the 3,000, take out the 75% who are suicide. So then compare that to the 2.2 to 2.5 million defensive gun uses every year. Hi, it's Penny Starr with CNS News. Did you testify
0: at the Senate Judiciary after Newtown? Is that yes? And I should I have. It? I should have mentioned that. Yes. Yeah, I remember I was there. And uh, but the question I have is that, covering uh, politics on the Hill, there's always uh, groups of families that come and talk about kids. That, you know these horrific tragedies. Why don't people who have been protected or lives saved from guns? Why aren't they out speaking, holding press conferences, and letting? Policymakers and the American people understand how many lives are saved by the things you've spoken about?
1: That is a great question and com- pointed comment, I think, as well. There needs to be more discussion of this. There are some very brave women. There's one woman that I remember in Colorado who was raped. And she went and testified before the Colorado legislature. She was a college student. And she was a concealed carry permit holder. But since the university did not allow concealed carry permit holders to have weapons on their campus, she obeyed the law because she was a law-abiding college student, did not bring her weapon with her, and was raped in a parking lot of the campus. And so, she, so she's brave in the first place, but then also to go in front of the Colorado legislature and testify about one of the most horrific possible things that you can imagine happening is just unbelievable. And it was picked up a little tiny bit in the mainstream media but Anderson Cooper didn't have an hour-long town hall on it. you know. She wasn't on the Sunday shows. And, and I think you're exactly right. And that's such an important point of my discussion that I wanted to share with you today, is that we have such an ideological bias right now that it really hampers the debate. And it makes you wonder if the people who are pushing gun control so much really care about public safety. Because in the weight of all the data that we have, it doesn't, their position doesn't make any sense.
0: That woman, by the way, she does speak for us. Her name's Amanda Collins. Yes, and yes. And she has three little babies, so it's tough for her. But she was raped in a parking garage. The police station on campus was right in her vision, and about 10 feet over there was one of these phones that you're supposed to pick up if you're in danger. The guy had a gun in her head. It was horrific. It was horrific. And she had no opportunity to defend herself. And when she tells the story... She breaks down every time. But she tells it to encourage young women to work on this issue and to carry, if they can. I'll go first
1: and I'll have too. here. Hi, my name is Tori. I also work at the Heritage Foundation. Um, my question is a little bit on that college campus thing. So um, I'm a recent grad from Michigan State. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it's been about a year now, actually. But um, anyways, uh, something on top of the the gun control thing is when it comes to self-defense in general um, and carrying pepper spray or something like that. Actually, in D.C. is illegal to defend yourself with pepper spray, and you can be sued for assault with a deadly weapon for defending yourself with pepper spray. And have you done any... Um, research into that side of self-defense, not just gun control, but other means of self-defense? That's such an important point, and I think it underscores the larger issue here. Why are we restricting the freedoms of law-abiding citizens to be able to defend themselves in these, in these attacks or situations? And especially when a lot of the people pushing these types of solutions have the benefit of the Capitol Police or they have the benefit of the Secret Service, especially Hillary Clinton, and she's had Secret Service ever since she left the White House as a former First Lady. So I haven't specifically researched the pepper spray issue, but certainly the same principles apply, that you should be able... That's a lawful purpose to have it to defend yourself. And if you're using it in a situation where you are facing a violent confrontation, that likewise would reverse the balance of power but not to the same measure. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about gun use in particular. I mentioned that statistic to you, that in less than 1% of cases where there is a violent attack that you have a defensive gun use, is the attacker killed or injured? So with pepper spray, you could maybe threaten that you're going to use it, but it might not be as effective when you're facing down the barrel of a weapon. And remember, over 90% of violent attacks do not involve weapons. So Over 90% of the time, you're facing someone who does not have a firearm. And if you have a gun, if you're able to show the gun, then in 99% of the cases, you're not going to have to injure or kill the attacker. So I think the same principle applies to the pepper spray, it's just the firearms are more effective. Yeah, absolutely. And especially on college campuses, like, the example there? Right, and we see some college campuses that are embracing that i think liberty university down in lynchburg virginia has encouraged students to get training and be able to make the campus safer and you know i I testified after newtown i continue to write about this periodically i wrote a piece in the washington times a few months ago when we had the isis attacks in paris this was before the isis attacks in brussels and i said D.C. is a number one target of ISIS. It is completely ridiculous and counterproductive to not allow concealed carry of law-abiding citizens in D.C. so that we don't have to just rely on the police. We have all the citizens. So ISIS is not going to want to make... D.C. as much of a target because you're increasing the risk that they are not going to be able to pull off something like they did in Paris, which has heavy gun control.
0: My question was, um, I actually wondered why in my house we didn't have a gun. My dad would always say that to boys that would come over. <laughs> but I knew we didn't have a, a many guns in our house. Um, I asked my dad, I said, why don't we have a gun? He said, we never had a reason to have one. No one's broken in. So... Do you suggest, I mean, I sounds from your talks that you suggest that people should go get carry license. Um, just because you don't have a
1: reason to, you think that you should be always be prepared? Is that kind of what you... Well, I have two points on that. My larger point is that we can all benefit from a society where we allow those who choose. That's why my, the title of my talk was entitled, A Woman's Right to Choose to protect herself. I want to enable women and safeguard and protect that right to choose. So I wouldn't necessarily go say, everybody should, you know, it's it's a personal responsibility, you should go get trained and you should take that step. But all of us benefit from, even if we choose not to carry, all of us benefit from advocating with our legislators, with any, any influence that we have in op-eds, letters to the editors, continuing to push that this right is fundamental and it disproportionately harms women. So even for those women who don't choose to take that route, we all benefit if we put our voices behind that. And I think, um, I forgot what the second part of my answer was, but... Uh, let me think. Your dad and I don't know. I don't remember what it was. Maybe it'll come to me.
2: I've got a question. You had some great statistics, and you mentioned that you went on the um, Justice Department um, website and and uh, kind of fact checked some of their statistics. Is there one place other than your columns where we can track these kinds of you know the watchdog? the statistics so when someone like an Anderson Cooper or somebody testifying says something that we get that feeling this doesn't sound right where we could go and check it out
1: Absolutely. And I'm not going to send you to the per, to the group that I think you might think I, I would be suggesting. What I would suggest you go to is a website for an organization called the Crime Prevention Research Center, cprccenter.org. And that's run by the economist that I cited to in my, my talk with you, John Lott. And he does stuff every single day up lots of information. I was just reading his site this morning and I didn't have time to go into it really in depth, but he had a piece that said 42 of the last 46 mass shootings happened out in the last, I think, 10 years happened outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. And all you hear on the Anderson Cooper shows or a lot of the other shows is that America has this horrible problem with mass shootings and that everyone should be terrified and demand a plan from our legislators and that will stop the crime. But he on this website not only has good little tidbits like that, he also draws the conclusion through his data based evidence that even if you were able to change things on one end, you have costs on the other end. So, like, for example, when you have, what I said earlier, when you have reduced gun ownership, you have increase of home invasions, and you have an increase of lethality of attack on homeowners. So when someone in the liberal media comes to you and says, you know, what about Australia? What about the UK? Well, what what if you do have some things that look better, but then you have rapes going up, and you have home invasions going up, and you have... the the lethality of the attacks going up. So he's a great resource. I I highly recommend that. Thank you. Hello, my name is Laurel Conrad. Um, One of the arguments that I hear feminists make is that women are likely to become um, victims of domestic crimes in their own house if the house has guns. Are there any statistics or arguments that you use to rebut that? Yes, and uh, I have written a lot about this. I wrote a piece. uh, There was a football player, Jovan Belcher, I think was his name. I wrote a piece about that, and he uh, was, I think he uh, horrifically killed his girlfriend and then maybe shot himself. I don't remember the details of the case. Uh, But I wrote this op-ed because Bob Costa, who's a big sports reporter, came out on his sports show Arguing about why there should be increased gun control so that people like this wouldn't be able to harm their loved ones, their partners, their wives, however you want to put it, their, their significant others. And I was outraged, not only that he said this on a sports show, because it's not his place to talk about that on a sports show, but also because he was tying the whole uh, pathology of the situation to the gun ownership forgetting that most people aren't murdered by guns. Take that one example of the study I told you. There are 444 homicides. Only eight were by guns in the house, and the majority of the attacks were the homicides occurred by bludgeoning, knifing, strangling, and other methods. So I would say that that is a common mistake, and I think, um, oh, I know what I was going to say to you. <laughs> yes, yes, I thought something would remind me of this. So on the issue of concealed carry permits, It takes a while to get a concealed carry permit. And John Lott is very good about writing about this. If you're in a situation where suddenly you have a domestic abuser or someone, you know, not even a partner, but somebody dislikes you and wants to come after you, if you want to get a concealed carry permit, it takes months even in Virginia, which is very gun friendly. You have to go through training, even if you were a former police officer, even if you have been using firearms since you were you know, a little child in safe places, you have to go through a prescribed order of things to do before you're entitled to exercise your fundamental constitutional right to defend yourself. So in answer to your question as well, if you, if you have the time and the interest and the inclination, I think it's a good idea for women to go get a concealed carry license even if you don't have a gun in your home, even if you don't carry a gun, but just so that if it ever comes up to that situation, you will instantly, within an hour, be able to to protect yourself in that situation.
0: Maybe I'll ask the last question before we have lunch. Um, For a young woman watching this, a lot will be watching it on our website and also on the Heritage or not-so-young woman, or man, who wants to get serious about learning how to use a gun, um, where would you recommend they go to take a course or to start to learn about it?
1: Well, since you all are in D.C. and the headquarters of the National Rifle Association are just down the highway on Route 66, I think the easiest thing to do is to contact them or look on their website. They have all sorts of training that they offer uh, that it's a good place to start. There are plenty of uh, former Secret Service agents and other standalone businesses that also offer these opportunities but it's very important if you do go get trained not to just stop there it's it's very very important like anything else you have to practice regularly so that it was a great question
0: that's right and I, I need to practice more this <laughs> we have some gifts for you thank you so, so much, much for oh, excellent oh. talk Thank you. really good We're going to give you our limited edition claire booth loose policy institute coffee mug with her famous saying no. no
1: Good Deed Goes Unpunished. There you go. And my favorite color. <laughs> there you go. And our
2: Every Woman Needs a tote big.
0: There awesome. you go.
2: And from Thank Heritage you. Foundation, we love books. So we've got our new Solutions 2016 uh, book that we brief all of the candidates with, um, which has a terrific Summary, of it'll fit right into your, your <laughs> tote bag. Perfect. And our talking points cards. So if any of you in the audience are interested in receiving these, uh, be sure to give us a card. We'll make sure that you get a copy. And we thank you all for joining us. Thank uh, you. And we're going to move outside to the lobby to continue the conversation over lunch. That so way. thanks, Gail. We really thanks appreciate it. Thanks so much it. for
1: having me. Absolutely. Thank